They tell me that I left six inches of snow on Friday in Wisconsin, and uh, that was one good reason to make it down here. Uh, the more important reason was Friday evening to be a part of what we hope is Father Mason's final ordination as a priest. <clears throat> I think this one took, uh, and that was a, a sheer delight, and thank you for your hospitality this weekend and letting me be a part of your service and uh, rector's forum this morning. Um, if you don't know, uh, I am the dean of Neshota House Theological Seminary in Wisconsin, where uh, Father Mason did his training. Father Gritter has done some training with us, and as I like to say, Father Chris could have. <laughs> I am the fifth of six children. I have four sisters and one brother, and my brother was the oldest in our family. And given that we are a full eight years apart, we never fought with one another. There would have been no point in me fighting with my eight-year-older brother, and it never occurred to me that I should take him on. I did, however, use my brother. What I mean is that around the neighborhood, it was useful to have a big brother. If some kids my age, or maybe especially just a few years older, started harassing me, maybe for good reason, there was a good chance that my big brother, and he was a pretty big guy, might just show up and play the enforcer. Hey, you giving my brother trouble? No, man, it's cool. We're just talking. And then he'd look at me and say, these guys give you any trouble, you just let me know. Now, understand, my brother had fiery red hair and a big, bushy red beard at a young age. He was barrel-chested and lifted weights. He chopped wood and literally dug graves at a cemetery. He looked like somebody you didn't want to mess with. Now, the truth is, he was an artist who loved to draw and paint watercolors and read poetry. But you didn't know that by looking at him. <clears throat> All you could tell is that he could probably beat you up if he wanted to. You didn't know that he never would, just that he could. Basically, he's a perfect older brother who came in handy in the neighborhood. Now, it's possible that the younger brother in this case, knowing that his bigger brother had his back, developed a kind of smart mouth around the neighborhood. In our day, we would call it talking big. And I talked big. And when I sensed danger, when I needed to, I would just say, you want me to get my brother? Now, you're probably wondering, what does this have to do with anything? I'm starting to wonder what this has to do with anything. <clears throat> but it will become God willing plain. <laughs> In our gospel lesson this morning, we meet again John the Baptist. But instead of the self-confident preaching of repentance to those coming to the Jordan River for a baptism, the reading that we had last week, we see him here expressing doubt. Sending messengers to Jesus, he asks, are you the one who is to come, or should we wait for another? Now, we might ask how someone as intrepid, as courageous, as apparently willing to say anything to the brood of vipers, as stoutly faithful as John the Baptist 
could have experienced this kind of doubt. After all, he went to prison for Jesus, and now he's wondering if Jesus was even the right guy. You see, whatever else he might have expected of, John, of Jesus, John the Baptist didn't expect to go to prison for him, much less to be beheaded for his sake. This is not how he figured it would have worked out. You see, like a neighborhood boy who knew that his big brother had his back, John fulfilled his prophetic calling as an outspoken man. It was, after all, his job to be outspoken. He was the first prophet after centuries of prophetic silence, and he was to speak out the prophetic word of God. And by all accounts, John was an intrepid soul, afraid of no one, speaking truth to power, calling all to repentance, tax collectors and soldiers and religious leaders, the common person, and even finally, Herod Antipas, the Roman client king. He spoke out against Antipas's marriage to Herodias, which was illicit by Jewish law, given that Herodias had been previously married to Herod Antipas's brother, Philip the Tetrarch. Now, if you recall, that was to be John's last stand. For annoying Herod, he was put in prison. For offending Herodias, he would lose his head. There was a reason that John spoke so forcefully, so urgently, so fearlessly. It was not only his courageous character, but it was because he understood that the judgment of God was coming immediately after him. Do you recall what John said about the one coming after him and the events about to unfold? Even now the axe is lying at the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. An image of imminent judgment. Or already the one who comes after him holds an implement in his hands, and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John sees what's coming. The axe at the root of the tree is not hard to understand, but this bit about the weed and the chaff may need just a little bit of explanation. Although we have a long tradition of translating the implement in, in John's successor's hands as a winnowing fork, that's what our text read today, it was not a fork, but was in fact a shovel. The point is this. John is not saying that the one who comes after him is going to separate wheat from the chaff as one would with a winnowing fork. Rather, he has a shovel in his hand, the one coming after him. It would be rather like a, a snow shovel. Not that that helps you at all. <clears throat> You've maybe seen them on TV. And this, with the snow shovel, the wheat would be pushed across the threshing floor into the granary and the chaff into a fire. It was the final mop-up operation, and the one coming after John would be here to do just that. So, by his preaching of repentance and baptism in the Jordan, John himself, as he understand it, has already separated the wheat from the chaff. That job is done. 
the one who comes after him will finish that job and will gather the wheat unto salvation and the chaff unto unquenchable fire. That's going to be Jesus' job. And as far as John is concerned, that's what Jesus comes to do. And as far as John can see, that is what Jesus was supposed to do. That's what messiahs do after all. So John could say anything he wanted to anyone he needed to. And if they failed to repent, it was not, as we might say, John's problem. The one coming after him would take matters into his own hands, and John would emerge clearly on the right side of history, vindicated for his righteousness. Now, please understand, everything John said about Jesus was true. But John did not yet know everything that was true about Jesus. While John prepared the way of the Lord, he was not prepared for the ways of the Lord Jesus. There was nothing about Jesus' early ministry that clearly fit into John's picture. The chaff, sinners, prostitutes, and tax collectors, they seemed to love Jesus, and worse, he loved them. The threshing floor that John had so dutifully sorted out had seemingly overnight become a mess again. Wheat and chaff mixed together, though now harder to identify which was which. And in one of the more blatant breaches of John's expectations, Jesus does favors for Roman centurions. Wait, the Messiah doing favors for the occupying army? This doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to John. Jesus seems to have taken John's threshing fork into the Galilean villages and left his cleanup shovel behind in the granary. And so John is left to ask, did I get this wrong? Is everything I've done been a waste? If this guy wasn't going to have my back, should I have just kept my mouth shut? So when Jesus is asked whether he is the one or whether John is to wait for another, do you see how Jesus answers? Indirectly, but unambiguously. He says, look, go tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. Now, what do you notice about the description of Jesus' ministry? I'm sure that our ears may not be as finely tuned as John's would have been to the Old Testament, but Jesus' answer is a litany of quotes from the prophet Isaiah. We heard many of those sayings right there in Isaiah 35 this morning, didn't we? Right? But notice, vengeance was to come first and then blessing. But with Jesus, it's reversed. The blessing is coming first as a kind of amnesty before his retribution and judgment of the world. These quotations from Isaiah are snippets drawn from hither and yon, but with one single message. This is what Jesus is saying. 
John, remember all of those passages from Isaiah when God comes in salvation to his people? You know, Isaiah 35, Isaiah 26, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 61, they weren't numbered at the time, but John knew all of the passages. Remember those passages? Well, what happens? The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. So John, what am I doing? What time is it? Who does that make me, John? Because everything John said about Jesus was true, John did not say everything that was true about Jesus. So blessed is he who does not stumble over me. You see, before Jesus shall come to judge the living and the dead, before Jesus comes to judge the world, before he gathers wheat and chaff to their eternal destination, he comes to bless, to redeem, to save. He comes healing and cleansing and raising and welcoming and offering mercy to the undeserved. Before he will judge the living and the dead, he will raise the dead to new life. Before he will take matters into his own hands, he will take nails into his hands. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came to save sinners, of which we are foremost. And the one the only one who could rightly be our judge has instead become our redeemer. And this is why he says to John the Baptist, blessed is he who does not stumble because of me. John, you've got a picture in your mind and it's half right, but it's not yet the whole truth. Don't stumble over me. Let me be the Messiah that God has called and made me to be very God of very God. Like John the Baptist, we do not get to define Jesus and make him our kind of Messiah. He will be his kind of Messiah. Thanks be to God. Jesus is not a mascot for our cause. He is not a talisman we appeal to for good luck or some kind of errand boy to do our bidding. He is not merely the redeemer of our kind of people. And if we follow him, if we follow him, and not a figment of our own imagination, we will find that we stand under a judge who is first the loving redeemer of the world, and the one who saved us calls us into his saving and redeeming work to the ends of the earth until the end of the age. And may we follow him. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook. Facebook.